In the second and third chapters of the Gospel of John, we find stories that seem to be connected together. There we find the record of Jesus' cleansing of the temple and his conversation with Nicodemus. But in the middle of this continuous narrative, we find one of a handful of what seem to be very unfortunate chapter divisions in our English Bible. And to illustrate that, I'd like to read the last three verses of the second chapter along with the first. The words I'm reading to you are justified, if not required, by the language of the Greek New Testament. At the end of chapter 2, we read, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. But there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. In the first century, as well as in the 21st century, the vast majority of people who know anything at all about our Lord Jesus tend to react to him in one of three ways. They respond with total indifference, they respond with hostility, or they respond with a self-serving kind of faith. While a few, prompted by something outside themselves, see themselves as they truly are, They see Jesus as he really is and are drawn to him in that faith that is able to save their souls. Among the hundreds of residents and passers-by who were in Jericho on a particular day, Zacchaeus was one of those few. The tenth leper was such a man. The thief on the cross was such a man. And among the rulers of the Jews, nearly unanimous in their hostility toward Christ, Nicodemus was such a man. The uniqueness of this man's response to Jesus stands out even more clearly when we move the chapter division back just a few verses so that the story of his sincere coming to Christ is contrasted with the self-serving attraction of so many others. Most of the third chapter of this fourth gospel is devoted to Nicodemus' conversation with the Lord on this second Sunday of Lent. I'd like to discuss parts of it with you. I'd like to begin by talking about the placement of this conversation in time. Since it appears very early in the Gospel of John, it's natural for us to assume that it took place very early in the public life of the Lord Jesus. And that assumption might be valid, But I'd like to suggest to you what I believe to be a very reasonable alternative to that view, and that's that this visit occurred not very early in Jesus' life, but very late, in fact, during its last week. One reason for saying that is that in the Gospel of John, this visit of Nicodemus is linked to the cleansing of the temple. If you read from the middle of the second chapter to about the middle of the third chapter, you'll notice that the narrative flows seamlessly from the cleansing of the temple to the general reaction of the masses to the coming and the conversation of Nicodemus. And on other occasions, you've heard me argue that the cleansing of the temple simply doesn't fit into the pattern of Jesus' very early ministry, and that John 
whose words are inspired. They are the word of God, but who makes no claim to be writing an orderly history, places it early for thematic reasons of his own, and not because it actually took place very early. But another reason for suggesting that this series of events took place later rather than early in Jesus' life is the references, the two references that we find to many signs, which John calls the miracles, that were seen by many and influenced their interest and their decisions. In chapter 2, we read, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his signs. When they saw the signs that he did, and in chapter 3, Nicodemus said, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. These signs were public miracles. They were signs of which vast numbers of people were aware. They were not miracles like the quiet, anonymous healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda or the restoring sight of the blind man referred to in chapter 9. And the only setting mentioned in the Gospels in which Jesus performed public miracles in Jerusalem was during that last week of his life. Matthew writes of that time, beginning on Palm Sunday, when he says, Then the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The Gospels also indicate that there were heated conversations taking place among the leaders of the Jews about these signs and about Jesus who was performing them and what all of this meant. Most of the members of the council of which Nicodemus was a part said that Jesus was doing miracles by the power of Satan. They dismayed because his popularity had grown to the point among the crowds that they said to one another, look, the whole world has gone after him. And Matthew says, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, they were indignant that they assembled at the palace of the high priest and plotted how they might take Jesus by trickery and kill him. That last week of Jesus' life, all of Jerusalem was stirred by his presence and by what he was doing. From the common man on the street to the high priest, everyone was talking about Jesus. Everyone was speculating about who he is, what he was intended to do. And while the minds of the majority of them were clouded with darkness, there were a few who sensed what God was doing in their time and how very natural in such a setting as this it would be for a few of them to seek out Jesus and say to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. And by the way, if this placing of Nicodemus' visit is valid, it also explains why he came to Jesus at night. It was not because he was embarrassed or afraid, as someone suggested. It was rather because from sunup to sundown, the Gospels make it very plain that Jesus' life was filled with his giving attention to hordes of people in the temple. There were no breaks. There was no opportunity for the kind of private audience that this teacher and this godly man sought with him. And thus his coming to Jesus at night was not a sign of cowardice on his part, but simply a practical necessity. And if this view is true, it also informs our understanding of where Nicodemus found Jesus, 
because the gospel writers all tell us that he spent his days in the temple, but in the evenings he retired to nearby Bethany, to the home of Martha and Mary, or perhaps to Simon the leper, and it was at one of those doors that Nicodemus must have knocked and where he found the Savior. I think there's a strong case to be made that Nicodemus' visit took place during that last week of Jesus' life, but in either case, whether this visit took place very early or very late in the Lord's public life, it contains sweet and valuable lessons for those of us who share Nicodemus' attraction to the Lord Jesus, and I'd like to consider a few of them with you. The first of these, obviously, is the need to be born again. In our text, Jesus said, most assuredly, when I was in the Navy, many announcements were made over a ship's PA system. But every once in a while, whoever was making those announcements would say, now hear this, now hear this. And we knew that whatever was to follow was something very important. Jesus' words, verily, verily, or most assuredly, are like that, now hear this. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And these are very much like his words in the 18th chapter of Matthew, where he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I remind you that these words of the Savior in John 3 occur in a context in which it's made clear that many people claimed some attraction to him, perhaps even some affiliation with him, but because their understanding was inadequate, because their hearts and motives were wrong, because their faith was misplaced. Jesus had nothing to do with them in time, and he has nothing to do with them in that eternity that follows time. And we certainly don't want to be numbered with them. If we assume for a moment that a Christian is a person who is right with God, and that his being right with God has something to do with his admiration of his devotion to or his relationship with Jesus Christ, then we need to understand that a Christian is not simply a person who respects Jesus as a person and tries to live life as he understands Jesus lived life. And a Christian is not merely a person who follows the teachings of Christ and tries to incorporate those teachings into his life. A Christian is a person who has been changed so remarkably that Jesus called it in one text a conversion and in another a new birth. This is not accomplished by receiving Christian baptism or by joining a church. This is not the result of amassing great knowledge of the teachings of Jesus or accumulating a list of good works. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. If we could, then it would not have been necessary for Jesus to have come and to have suffered and to have died. Our being born again, our being converted, our being saved or redeemed occurs in conjunction with our recognition of Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of those who place their trust in him. Those who have been made right with God are those who say to him with Nicodemus, Rabbi, I know that you are a man sent from God are those who say to him with Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, who say to him with Thomas, my Lord and my God. 
the one that you and I have learned to call Lord, said that only the converted will be able to enter the kingdom of God, that only those who are born again can even glimpse that kingdom. Nicodemus saw the working of that kingdom and desired to know more and more of it, leading us to the conclusion that he was born again before he knocked on Jesus' door. The conversation found in John 3 speaks to us of the necessity of the new birth for those who would know and please God. It also speaks to us of the depth and the profundity of the scriptures. As a teacher in Israel, as a minister of the word of sacrament and a Presbyterian church, I was startled by something that I noticed in this text for the first time. In verses 3 through 8, the Lord speaks to Nicodemus about the new birth. But then in verse 10, after Nicodemus indicates that he doesn't fully understand what Jesus is saying, Jesus said to him, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? Nicodemus was a student and a teacher of the scriptures. The scriptures of him, of course, would have been what we call the Old Testament. And Jesus expected him to understand on the basis of scriptures available to him, the fact and the necessity of the new birth. As believers sincerely desiring to know and to please God, you and I are occasionally and far too easily drawn to the simplistic and the superficial. We are sometimes perfectly content to have the complex questions of faith and life answered by reference to a single verse or even a single sentence found in Scripture. For example, to many Christians, it's always wrong for a Christian to respond to verbal or physical abuse in kind because, after all, didn't Jesus say, turn the other cheek? It's common to hear complaints when a Christian is overheard, whether from a pulpit or in private conversation, criticizing the beliefs and the lifestyles of others for, after all, didn't Jesus say you should not judge? And there are Christians who have erected entire philosophies of Christian responsibility to the earth, to human culture, or to the lost on the basis of Jesus' statements, you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. We reduce the majesty of the God who has saved us. We deny the complexity of the great questions of Christian believing and living, and we treat the issues of life in so shallow a fashion, and when we do that, we undermine the majesty of the gospel. Jesus said that the new birth is found in the Old Testament. And many of you are beginning to do what I was beginning to do this week and wonder, where is it? There's no verse, there's no chapter in the Old Testament that deals with the subject of the new birth. If we're going to find it, we have to do what God intends that we do. And that's take a piece of scripture here and a piece of scripture here. And by the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gives us, put those verses, those sections together to formulate a doctrine. In this case, that of regeneration or the new birth. It might have occurred to you as it occurred to me that he's referring to the prophecy of Jeremiah, where in the 31st chapter, God is quoted as promising to make a new covenant with his people because they broke his first covenant. And God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, know the Lord, because they will all know me. And some, I think, simplistically make that promise 
refer to the age in which we live between the coming and the return of Jesus Christ. And yet I remind you that this new covenant was given because God's people broke his first covenant. And much of the New Testament, you will recall, was written to people who had broken the new covenant. And so it is probably a reference to something other than that. You might think, as I thought of David's words in Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. But I remind you that these words are not about the new birth because they were written by a man who was already born again. I've been wrestling with this, and the closest thing that I have come to an answer, and I'll be fascinated in hearing yours, is by combining some things that are said in the Psalms. For example, the second Psalm graphically describes the blackness of the unredeemed human heart and mind. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This mournful lament about the fallenness and depravity of unredeemed human nature is taken up in the 14th Psalm, where we read, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none that does good. No, not one. Here we find this indictment, not simply of human deeds and human thoughts, but of human hearts and souls. Such inspired testimonies as to the nature of man would require the careful student of Scripture, like Nicodemus, to know that since man is inclined by his very nature to ignore or to rebel against God, if any person is found to have a deep, genuine interest in the things of God, then his heart and mind must have been changed. And this change is one that man has neither the desire nor the power to make himself. But against this black, black drap background of the depravity of unredeemed human nature, we find these marvelous statements of affection for God and the things of God. In Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. In 116, I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my supplications. In the 84th, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. In 23, the joyful statement, the Lord is my shepherd. In 27, the Lord is my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And then in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. How is it possible? The student of the Old Testament must ask for a man whose 
very nature despises God, regards his commandments as unwanted intrusions into his pleasures and freedoms, who resents God's rightful and reasonable claims on his loyalty to say and desire such things as these, unless God himself has acted to transform his inmost being, to give him life where once there was death. This is new birth in the Old Testament, the Bible of Nicodemus. This is that unilateral working of the Holy Spirit by which we are transformed from what we once were to that what God wants us to be. This is the new birth experienced before Jesus came in the flesh by all who spoke of their love and desire for God. This is the new birth experienced by all in our time who call on the name of the Lord. This accounts for our passion for the things of God. This causes us to cringe in his holy presence and to rejoice at every reminder of his mercy. This explains our earnest yearning to please God in all of our ways through all of our days. Jesus expected this teacher in Israel to know more than the mere jots and tittles of the word of God. He expected him to see the connections between those jots and tittles, separated in some cases by many pages, by many chapters. And if Jesus expected this of Nicodemus, he also expected of me, and he expects it of you. This makes the earnest study of the scriptures, not simply the devotional reading of the Bible, not simply the learning of a verse here and a verse there, but the earnest, concentrated study of the scriptures, one of the major works of the Christian life. And our Lord's conversation with Nicodemus reminds us of this. This conversation also speaks to me about the church's oft-expressed concern for the broken and the hurting. One minister who was prominent in earlier years in the life of our denomination was known often to have said that Jesus came to save the least, the last, and the lost. I heard a pastor in our area say recently, there are a lot of hurting people in Flint. We need to reach out to them with the gospel. Such comments as these give the impression that Christ has little interest in the strong and the successful. Those who are essentially happy with their lives those whose jobs are satisfying and secure, those whose marriages and families are sound, those whose good have good health and financial security. Certainly, we find on the pages of the Bible stories of the poor and the weak and the diseased who were brought to faith in Jesus Christ, the paralyzed man in Capernaum, and the grieving widow of name are such as these. Joseph and Mary were poor people and represent this class of humanity. Both Paul and Peter addressed parts of their letters to slaves. One of them might have been named Onesimus. And in 1 Corinthians 1, we read, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But in that same Bible, we also find the stories of the wealthy and the influential whose names are written in the book of life. Peter and Andrew, James and John were successful businessmen, as was Matthew. The rich young ruler and Zacchaeus were men of achievement and substance. Philemon, the owner of the slave Onesimus, was the recipient of one New Testament letter. And James makes reference to the wealthy who come into Christian gatherings. 
In the history of the early church, the names of Barnabas and Lydia and Cornelius are those of the prosperous and the prominent. And Nicodemus was a man of great stature in Israel, an elder, a member of its ruling council. There are political leaders in our nation who have feathered their own nests and enhanced their own power by claiming to be advocates of the poor and the weak and those who have no voice. This rhetoric has found its way into the church. Certainly, Jesus is able to save the weak. He is also able to save the powerful. It is not a blessing to be poor. It is not a blessing to be wealthy. It is a blessing to know God through Jesus Christ, his son, whatever one's earthly circumstances might be. Nicodemus was a rich, powerful, famous man who was drawn by the Holy Spirit to that place where Jesus was to be found. And his story remind us that God indeed is no respecter of persons. And then this conversation with Nicodemus reminds us of the irresistibility of grace. Many of you are deer hunters. I have been out deer hunting. It does not seem that Michigan's deer population is particularly threatened by my presence in the woods. But if you're a hunter, you know how carefully you have to prepare for the hunt. You have to disguise yourself so that you blend in with your surroundings. You have to cover your smell. No offense. And even then, you have to work very carefully with the wind. You have to study the patterns of the movement of the deer so that you might be in the right place at the right time. And when game comes your way, there are many things to consider as you aim your gun or your arrow. The distance, the speed and the direction of the wind, the elevation, any obstacles that might be between you and your quarry. And of course, especially if you're a new hunter, the pounding of your own heart and the trembling of your own hands. And you have to be very careful about your steps and your movements. For deer have excellent senses of sight and smell, and the slightest sound or movement will send them scampering away, and you'll go home discouraged at the end of the day with your game bag empty. There are many Christians who view evangelism as hunters view hunting. They fear that if they say the wrong thing or the right thing in the wrong way, or if they're unable to answer a question or respond to a criticism, or if something in their life doesn't quite line up with the faith that they profess, then an opportunity will be wasted, their quarry will scurry back into the darkness of unbelief, perhaps to be lost forever. The experience of Nicodemus speaks to us of the robustness and the certainty of the leading of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus went looking for Jesus that night, possibly placing his standing among the people in jeopardy by asking where Jesus might be found. The reasons for not going were much more persuasive than the reasons for going, but there was a compulsion in Nicodemus that would let him do nothing other. Many of you have conversion stories that involve worship services or evangelistic meetings in which an invitation was given. You remember a time when you rose from your seat you went down the aisle where you consulted and then prayed with a pastor or someone with special training. The reasons not to go were several. 
There was the embarrassment of making yourself conspicuous in a crowd of hundreds or perhaps even thousands. There was the uncertainty of not knowing what to expect and what might be expected of you. There was the awkwardness of keeping others waiting while someone dealt with your questions and needs. But when you remember that question or that that occasion, I'm sure that you would agree that however much of this you considered, you had no choice but to get out of your seat and walk down that aisle. There was something in you that compelled you to rise and to walk and to finish the process, and that something was nothing other than the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that moved Nicodemus out into the darkness of that light and in, or that night into the light that is found only in Jesus Christ. As we think about evangelism, it's a good thing for us to study apologetics and Christian evidences that we might be able to respond to the questions and the criticisms of others. It's a good thing for us to consider what to say and what not to say when we have an opportunity to share our faith with others. It's a good thing for us to live among the children of men wisely in order that nothing obvious in our lives compromises our testimony of faith. It's a good thing for us to memorize passages of Scripture and to learn illustrative stories to use when we have those opportunities. But it's also important for us to be convinced that in the final analysis, when people come to faith in Jesus Christ, it isn't because we said the right thing in the right way at the right time, but because they were being led inexorably and certainly along the way by the Holy Spirit. In the same gospel, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And finally, as we read through this third chapter of John, we notice that as the narrative continues, John disappears, or Nicodemus disappears from view. He's very prominent early with his, with his statement of recognition and his questions, but then he simply disappears. And this leaves us wondering what became of Nicodemus. Those who are reading this for the first time must wonder, how did he respond to the things that he heard? Did he eagerly embrace Christ and become his disciple? Did he go back into the night thinking about the things that he had heard to step into a future that is unknown to us? Or was he offended, like so many others, and turn away from Christ with disgust and derision? But our questions are answered by reading on in the Gospel of John. For in the seventh chapter, we find a time when the council in Jerusalem was debating Jesus. The atmosphere was seething with a hatred toward this man who was saying such wonderful things and doing such wonderful things, and they wanted to condemn him at the earliest opportunity. But Nicodemus said, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? But even more convincing is the testimony of the 19th chapter. There we read of the crucifixion of Jesus. The chapter comes to an end and we see the body of Jesus hanging limp upon his cross. But we read there, after the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body, and Nicodemus, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Here, this important man in sacred history is identified with the disciple of our Lord Jesus. Here, he takes 
an enormous risk to publicly assist in the removal and the temporary burial of the body. And here our questions about the reality of his faith and the depth of his devotion are very clearly answered. Just like Nicodemus going to that place where Jesus was to be found every Sunday morning, you and I come together to reflect on some portion of his word, to sing his praises, and then to go back out into the world thinking about what we have done and what we have heard. In many cases, it's possible that there are others who are watching us as we have been watching Nicodemus, wondering whether the faith that we profess by coming to this place is real or false. May it be so that our lives tomorrow reflect the things that we have heard and done today. Let us pray. Our Father, we understand that you did not send your Son into the world to congratulate us or even to sympathize with us. He came to give his life in order that we might be transformed, that we might be converted, that we might be born again, that we might become what we by nature are not, and we praise you for that. But we understand, our God, that our coming to Christ in faith was not the end, but simply the beginning of our Christian experience. Again, we are mindful that you have called us to live lives that glow with the light of everlasting glory. May it be so among us as it was with Nicodemus. We pray in Jesus' name.